0: Hello, my goblins and ghoulies. I'm Casey. And I'm Andy.
1: And this is...
0: The Ghoulcast. Hello, everyone.
1: Hello, ghouls and goblins.
0: (laughs) Welcome back. We're going to do a shorter one today. Yep. A little exclusive for the Patreon. Are you excited?
1: I'm always excited to be here.
0: (laughs) We're going to talk about uh, post-mortem photography um, briefly. We're not going to get really into it because we're going to make this probably 20 minutes or less. Yeah. And we're going to touch on crime scene photography as well.
1: People die sometimes. It's sometimes a crime. Yes.
0: Yes. They overlap a little bit in some of their practices. So I'm going to give a pretty brief overview, but we're going to try and keep it fun as well.
1: That's always fun. I don't know what you're talking about.
0: History is fun to me.
1: I think a lot of the people listening probably feel the same.
0: I I certainly hope so. I hope you're listening to it because you enjoy it and not because someone's forcing you to. <laughs>
1: Do you see? <laughs> Listen to
0: our podcast, please. <laughs> so, postmortem photography or morning portraits is the practice of photographing the recently deceased. Yes. Yes. Very big, especially in uh, the Victorian era is really when this started to pick up as it was becoming more affordable. Because previously, before photography really took off, people were doing paintings, right? Yeah. And who can afford to do paintings? Rich people. Rich people. It's always the rich people that have all the good stuff, right? So photography comes about and it's still kind of a rich people thing. But there was this new camera that made it a lot more affordable. And it's French, so I'm going to do my best. I've tried to write it out phonetically. It is the type. The type. Yes. Wow. Thank you for pointing out my <laughs> dyslexia. <laughs> The daguerreotype (laughs) was made more available in 1839. So this made it more affordable for middle classes to sit for photographs instead of sitting for paintings, um, you know, which would have been just completely out of reach for anyone in middle class Victorian era.
1: Yes. No, that was pretty, pretty big deal to get that and ended up making it a lot more accessible to everybody. And because there were no rules about how you take pictures yet. We have all kinds of really goofy pictures.
0: Yes, we have all sorts of really fun pictures. but um, And it was quicker. It was quicker to have a photograph taken. I know that there is this uh, misconception out there that people had to sit for 30 minutes or longer for a photograph.
1: Uh, that's not true. <laughs> yeah, not, not by this point in history. But no. The very early ones needed a while because they were still figuring it out. Right. You know a lot more about photography? I know than our other of it than our about, other topics I know a decent amount about photography I don't have it compared to other stuff no.
0: well good yeah. that's I like a lot more back and forth this will this will be fun it'll make it longer <laughs> yes <laughs> um photography was very common um nineteenth century due to death being considered an ordinary part of life I mean at this point people are still um, preparing bodies in their homes, you know?
1: Yeah, no, it was definitely a little bit more uh, prevalent in people's activities than where it is now, where we right. just pay other people to do it.
0: Right. This isn't um, crime scene related where people are being dumped or hmm? um, maybe have taken their own lives and they're being found. This is someone has passed in the home, whether it's due to, you know, their age or one of the many epidemics happening at the time we had.
1: Some kind of serious injury or whatever. Yeah,
0: yeah, well, we've got diphtheria, we've got typhus, we've got cholera, to name a few of the big ones that are hitting, especially infants and children around the Victoria era. So the mortality rate of children was... Very high in comparison.
1: Yeah, we weren't good at the uh, sanitizing yet.
0: <laughs> we didn't know. This is a right. this is a knowledge thing. Like not that long ago. Not it, it's really not that long ago when you when you look at it on the grand scale of things. It's it's not that long ago, and people were doing their best. Yep. So it's a it's a a tragic thing that. Uh, they had to take care of inside of your own home, no less. So you're preparing your body of your loved one for, um, you know, the wake and the funeral and all of this is happening in the home. So it's very commonplace um, practice to have the body set up. And as photography is becoming more affordable and more popular, people really wanted to immortalize and have a keepsake of their loved one because, like, locks of hair, very common, and uh, other trinkets, maybe you know, a ribbon or something that you've sewn their name or embroidered,
1: or something that they personally embroidered if they were a bit older. Right? Yep, you get the little effects off this person.
0: Right, little mementos mm-hmm. and um, trinkets, whereas we're progressing into photography, you can have this keepsake that's, you know, their last moments in life. Like if you're taking it on their sick bed or right after that, they have passed yeah. away, you're able to immortalize them. And sometimes this was the only photograph that people uh, had the ability to take of their loved ones, especially if they yeah. were a child and oh, very yeah. young, you wouldn't have had the opportunity or could have afforded to get a, a photograph done of them at this time. Correct. And it's also something that as, um, we get into, uh, what was it called? Cart to Vista is the process that allowed multiple copies of a single negative, meaning that you could mail copies to distant relatives. So like if, you know, grandma lived across the other side and was too poorly to travel, if she's on the other side of the country or something, then you could send these keepsakes and have multiple pictures taken of a loved one that had passed away. Um,
1: A lot more affordable to do that. Like I said, it it was a really big deal. This time of uh, history, it ended up expanding a lot of access to this technology.
0: Oh, definitely. And it got so affordable that um, people could actually purchase and begin taking photographs for themselves at this point. Yes. So, really started to pick off with the post-mortem uh, photography. Um, so uh, a really popular way to position the deceased was, you know, in a chair or arranged to kind of mimic life as these were, their last photographs, or maybe the yeah. only photograph that was ever taken of this person, and just kind of to immortalize their last presence before burial or their cremation,
1: if that's what they were doing. Yeah. Regular weekend at Bernie stuff. Yeah.
0: Well, and it was really popular for, or at least really not uncommon for mothers to be holding their children or infants for the photograph. Oh, for um, sure. Yeah. To kind of have. Common. Yeah, to have that um, that last but, moment, that basically. last moment. Yeah, I was I was trying to find a delicate way. to... Um,
1: it is that last moment that gets um, memorialized inside these photographs that they took.
0: Yes. So, and that's very important because there's so much going on, especially in the Victorian era, that we just were losing so many children at this time. Yes. So, I also wanted to bring up a common misconception about the um, postmortem photography that I thought was kind of silly. Was the the use of the stand or an armrest to help prop them up? That is not actually what it was used for. And you can even like easily research it as you're going through and looking at patents and people discussing how these things were made to be used. And it's just kind of silly thinking that they would be propping up a person who is deceased with one of these stands. Um, you know, for a, a few seconds for a photo because they're not going to move anyway. And that's what the stands were for is to help position the living so they would stay still long enough so it wouldn't be blurry. Because yeah. even a five second photo can be blurry. Yeah.
1: No, if you had to be pretty still still. Still.
0: Still. <laughs> still. Okay. <laughs> but um, you know, you can't you can't put a deceased person in one of these stands. It's no. incredibly impractical and you know, you can't wait that long to do anything like that and after preparing a body or if the body is, uh, you know, in rigor mortis, it's just going to fall over. It's not what those stands are meant to do. They're not meant to hold you by any means. They're meant to make sure you don't wiggle too much. That's
1: not what they're for. Yeah, using the lean on. And like you said, if you're dead, you just position the body where you want it.
0: It would be a very big and expensive piece of equipment to hold a person in position. And that's for sure. just That's not what they were. If you see any pictures of them, they are thin- bars that are are meant to wrap around just to hold someone from wiggling too much for the duration of the exposure yeah so i just thought that was interesting that is a really prevalent still misconception about postmodern photography it's just it's not what they're for and even if you look at the photographs people like oh you can see the stand and that means that 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 one person is dead no that means that one person is twitchy (laughs) and they can't stand still so they're wasting um their plates or whatever they were using at the time.
1: Yeah, it would have been big plates. Big plates.
0: Time. Well, some of them were um, silver sheets, even.
1: Yes, that's uh, that inter- was the common one.
0: Very interesting. So
1: <laughs> It was silver for a very long time. They've switched to electrons now.
0: <laughs> right. And I think another misconception is because of the chemicals that they had to use to process photographs back then, um, definitely left people in an eerie tent From, you know, exposure time or the actual chemical that they use. So if you had blue eyes, you look like you had white eyes. Yeah. Just because they weren't able to catch that much detail in the types of photographs we were doing back then. No, I was, I was still figuring it out. (laughs) Right. It definitely looks spooky to have white
1: eyes instead of blue eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah. Later photographs um, leaned more towards people actually in coffins. And would show the deceased in a coffin, you know, with a large group of funeral attendees, maybe. And um, this photograph is definitely more popular in Europe and stuff, as we're still doing, you know, wakes and stuff within the home. Yes. Um, Less so the – as we go on later, less so of the people propped or just the deceased individual by themselves. Yeah. So due to the rise of photography – the the rise of popularity of photography, I apologize – and the ease of access during the 19th and 20th centuries, the use of photography for police investigation rose. Yes. So, and this is tying us all back into um, post mortem and crime scene photography, which are incredibly fascinating to me. Um, this started with the photographic documentation of prison inmates.
1: Yeah, no, they would start taking pictures of people so you could recognize them later.
0: Right, so back in 1843-44 in Belgium, and around 1851 in Denmark, um, these shots ranged from, um, you know, a semi-mugshot to prisoners in their cells, and um, the purpose of them varied from actual documentation of people, like, seeing, okay, this is this person, this is how you identify them, by these marks... The shape of his face, whatever, to people just figuring out and messing around with cameras. It was really up to the discretion of the prison and the prison officials and whoever's doing the photograph, you know, maybe it's a specific person they hired, maybe it's just a prison guard, maybe it's the actual prison official or someone from the board coming in and just snapping
1: photos. It's yes. Like everything else we've talked about so far, it's just whatever those folks are trying.
0: Right, trying so it, they're just figuring it out at this point. But around the 1870s, the practice had spread pretty wide out throughout Europe, and professional photographers would be employed to take posed pictures of criminals and prisoners. And this is like really early standard of what a muck mugshot is known of today sorry i'm having trouble speaking well well i didn't do my warm-ups no
1: she didn't do them (laughs) I, i i can attest to that but
0: this um standardization of mugshots is a big deal right so this is the first time photos are being taken not for art or personal family portraits this is to document and um you know catalog (laughs) Criminals. <laughs> so this is a big change. This is, this is for learning purposes. This is for investigative purposes. This isn't for
1: a keepsake. Yeah, right. I, well, that's totally fair. I, that's the state started using it instead of it just being individuals doing it because they wanted the the memory of the person or the time.
0: Right. So this is starting to um, spread out, but it's still not everywhere, and it's most in countries with bigger cities that are using that and denser populations and really reserved for serious offenders until later towards the 19th century, or later in the 19th century, when we started using it more frequently to um, document offenders. As the number of criminals climbed, (laughs) so did the number of photographs. So organizing and storing became a problem, how to archive all of these. Uh, collections called the Rogue Galleries classified criminals according to the types of their offenses. Yep. So the earliest evidence of these types of galleries was found in Birmingham, England in the 1850s. So shortly after, there was the initial attempts to standardize the photographs. Yeah. You know, so we're looking and they're documenting each of the features is when we're starting to look at this. So the French photographer Alpons Bertillon stated that subjects should be well lit, photographed full face and also in profile and with the ear visible in um, the front and profile. So he's the first one to say, this is how you should standardize it. This is how we should document. And this is what we should be looking for. He said that you should ditch the ideas from commercial portraits and really have a measured, standardized practice of identification for mugshots. And by the turn of the century, both both his measurement system and photographic rules had been widely accepted. So he is credited with the invention of the mugshot. That's really cool. That is really cool. I find that's... I'm really excited. (laughs) You're always excited. I'm always excited. Um, So actual crime scene photography um, allows more room for creative interpretation, obviously, and variance in style that includes, you know, taking pictures of the victim. So, um, you know, identifying marks, whether they are scars, birthmarks, tattoos, um, but also um, evidence of the crime. So if there are wounds, you know, for purpose um, of Conviction would be instead of identification. um, They need to take pictures of the scene, including placement of the objects, position of the body, um, pictures of evidence and uh, fingerprints all had to be photographed. And the development of this style of forensic photography is responsible for, you know, really radical changes, including more public involvement as pictures are being published in papers, you know, to get a wider reach and, um, more so than you know bodies being laid out such as what was being done in the paris morgue um you know for lookers to help identify so um the paris morgue is also really um fascinating and we could do another mini episode about that at some time um and just morgues and and morticians in general would be really interesting sure let's do it Um, (laughs) not today though (laughs) Now, Bertillion was a really busy guy because he also was the first to methodically photograph and document crime scenes as well. He did this both at the ground level and overhead, which he called God's eye view, end quote. So his mug shots helped to identify people being different in appearance so as to not mix them up with um, other people. So people who are... um, multiple offenders and stuff like that they have record and then his crime scene photos were to help identify similarities to be shared out with the public
1: oh right yeah no Uh, i would imagine that this helped a lot with trying to engage the public with what happened well and i able to find those trends
0: right and just helping leaps and bounds for um you know investigation and helping uh Suss out serial killers and stuff like that and repeat
1: offenders. Right. Um, That was the whole point of the rogues gallery. You try to capture the people that keep doing the crimes. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Now, um,
0: I want to jump ahead and end on kind of a funny, funny bit. Um, Let's go and talk about my (laughs) favorite uh, Ouija. Have you heard Ouija? Have you heard of him? No. Okay, this is a nickname earned by Arthur Felig. He was always showing up to crime scenes before everybody, including the police. He is um, a photographic reporter. Okay, And so they called him Ouija as a play on Ouija. Yeah. And (laughs) this implied that he was, you know, a spook able to get to where the action was before anyone else knew what was going on. Yeah, I know. Getting ahead of that. So his first exhibition as a solo um, exhibition uh, entitled Ouija: Murder is My Business, and showed in 1941 at the Photo League in New York. Uh, Ouija did not personally consider his photos to be art. Right. Because he was, you know, a photojournalist and he was documenting crimes. That's
1: work. It's not art. (laughs)
0: Right. You know, but he still did this exhibition because it was still really popular. I'm I'm sure just
1: like you right now, other people were excited about it.
0: (laughs) I'm sure, you know, and many people did see his work as art, even if he felt it was more... um, history and documenting what was going on right um still important but important in a different way than um how people see art absolutely um his photographs were intended to be documentation and were viewed that way in the paper by many people but um you know they were also shown in museums and seen by art by many others his first book was published in 1945 and was titled the naked city if anybody wants to go and look at that but i thought Ouija was really cool and wanted to share him the hounds. The hounds of hell.
1: I don't know. They're pretty yippy. Isn't I wouldn't be that.
0: I, I would think the hounds of hell would be yippy instead of growly. That would be hell in my opinion. That's fair. Most of the <laughs> tiny yip-yip
1: dogs are the ones that get possessed by demons.
0: Right? Totally that's, applicable.
1: That totally works. Never mind. I, I take back my comment.
0: <laughs> but that's all I wanted to talk about today. I wanted to keep it short and sweet and... Not so heavy as some of the other ones are definitely going to be.
1: If you want to catch us, you've got all the social media details we can toss out. You can email us.
0: Yes, we are on Instagram as the Ghoulcast. You can email us at theghoulcastpod at gmail.com. We are on Patreon, which is where you have found us for this recording, the Ghoulcast. And you can listen anywhere you podcast. Because you we can't. should be on anything.
1: <laughs> if you can't find us on their preferred platform, feel free to email us. Yes, I will get it up there if I can. Yes. All right. Thanks for joining. I love you. Bye-bye.
0: Bye.